0: Matthew chapter 3. If you're there with me, say amen. 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 All right. Well, I'm excited to open the scriptures here back to the gospel of Matthew. We're going verse by verse. We've made it to chapter 3. And that's good news. We've made it to chapter 3. We've only got about uh, 26 more chapters to go. And so we're making progress here, okay? Um, But I love studying verse by verse through books of the Bible. And between Matthew chapter 2, where we left off last time in our study... And where we're picking up here in Matthew chapter 3, about 30 years have elapsed. And uh, uh, really the entire young adult years of Jesus Christ are what what took place. And there's not a whole lot the Bible has to say to us about the early years of Christ. In fact, nothing is recorded about those years in the Gospel of Matthew. But Matthew picks up his Gospel account here in Matthew chapter 3 by introducing us to a man that he hasn't told us about yet. His name is John the Baptist. Have you ever? How many of you heard of John the Baptist before? Okay, now he wasn't John the Baptist as in we are Baptists today. Okay, um, I know that. In uh, fact, they called him the Baptist because he baptized people. Um, he baptized a lot of people in his day and time. Uh, But John the Baptist is as we know him in the scripture. In Luke's gospel, we discover that this John, John the Baptist, he was actually the cousin of Jesus, born to an elderly couple, miraculously, uh, named Zacharias and uh, Elizabeth. And so these two conceived this John in their old age, and uh, John was brought into the world. Elizabeth was the uh, cousin of Mary, and so uh, 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 John the Baptist ended up being the cousin of Jesus Christ because of that. Now, before he was ever even conceived in the womb, over in Luke's Gospel, and this is in your notes, in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, the Bible told that an angel foretold that he, John the Baptist, shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, And he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. It's incredible. Said of no one else except for Christ in the scripture. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias or Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And then it says to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This man, John the Baptist, was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He was a divine, a divine herald sent from God down into this world to prepare the hearts of people for the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. He's an incredible character to study in the scripture. Many prophets had foretold that there was going to be this forerunner who would show up before the Messiah came. And John was the fulfillment of every single one of those prophecies. And so his created purpose, the reason God made him, was literally to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. For just a few moments this morning, I want us to focus in on what it means to prepare the way for Jesus. That's what John's created purpose was... And for you and I here today, I think it's important we understand what it means to prepare the way for Jesus. In ancient times, it was common for a herald to precede the arrival of the king to announce his coming and to prepare for his safe and proper travel. And these heralds in these ancient times would go ahead of the king and they'd go look at the roadways. And they'd make sure that the roadways were clear, that there were no potholes in the road, and that there were no obstructions in the road. They'd clear off brush and anything that would impede the travel of the king. And then they'd travel ahead from city to city to announce, the king is coming. The king is coming. You all better get ready because the king is coming. And that's what a herald was in those ancient times. And that's essentially what John the Baptist's ministry was all about as well to remove obstacles and to make the proclamation that the king Jesus Christ the Messiah was about to come. And uh, you know like a forerunner, like John was a forerunner, I believe that God has called us as believers today to go ahead before the Lord and speak to people and tell them Jesus Christ is coming. To prepare the way for the Lord. And as we study this passage of scripture, We'll see how John was used of God to prepare the way for Jesus. And how, I believe as well, we can be used of God to prepare the way for Jesus. And so there are three necessary factors I want us to look at as we study the life of John here. Three necessary factors to prepare the way for Jesus. And perhaps the greatest step we can take is is a step to pray first. I I want us to pray and prepare our hearts to receive the message that God has for us today. So let's bow our heads and pray together. You pray in your heart as I pray out loud. Our Father, we come before you. Thank you for this opportunity to open your word. and We've already been blessed through testimony, uh, through the uh, words of, uh, of your truth that have been communicated in song. And I thank you, God, for these faithful people who have come out on a snowy day uh, to give you glory, to worship you, and to hear your word. And I pray, God, that you will, you will uh, just feed us spiritually from your truth today. Give me clarity of thought and heart and mind. You know the time I have, the other things that are going on today. But there's nothing more important than these moments right now. And there's nothing more important than what you're about to do in people's hearts. I believe that. And I pray that your spirit would have free reign and that we would not be distracted by any of the things that we often allow to distract us. But that we would focus in and have ready minds and willing hearts to respond to your truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And amen. Three necessary factors to prepare the way for the Lord. The first one I want you to note down is repentance. Just write the word down, repentance. Now, look, going to our text in Matthew chapter 3, this is what verse number 1 tells us. It says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, this character, John, he seems to come out of nowhere on the scene of Scripture. It had been hundreds of years since Israel had had a true prophet. In fact, the last prophet that they had had was a guy who was named Malachi. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, Malachi's prophecy. And the last words in that prophecy that Malachi had written. So the last thing Israel had heard from one of their prophets were these words. Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 which says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Malachi had foretold that someone like Elijah was going to show up again before the Messiah would come. And so because that was the case, at every orthodox Orthodox Jewish Passover still to this day, when they celebrate the Passover, they put an extra cup at the table for Elijah. Still to this day, at every uh, Orthodox Jewish circumcision for one of their baby boys, they put an empty chair there during the ceremony. And the reason why they do that is because it's for Elijah. It's an anticipation of the fulfillment of this prophecy and the indication of it is, the idea of it is, If Elijah were to ever come and drink from that cup or sit in that chair, then the Jewish people would know the coming of their Messiah was imminent. Well, I'm here to tell you today, Elijah's already come. John the Baptist was not the literal fulfillment of the prophecy of Elijah's coming, but he was the spiritual fulfillment of it. You say, how do you know that? Well, from the Bible, of course. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 1 and verse number 17, the angel foretold that John would go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. John was the Elijah promised to come. And at the appointed time, God moved on the heart of this great prophet, the greatest of prophets, Jesus called him. And he stepped forward and began his ministry of preparing people for the Lord Jesus Christ coming to this earth, and I want you to notice in verse one a particular aspect of His ministry. The Bible says, "In those days, John the ba- came, John the Baptist, and what was He doing? What's the next word? Oh, you got to say it like a preacher. Come on now, preaching. Yes, preaching. That's what He came doing. The Greek word is caruso." It means to herald, and as a divine herald, he stood up and started to proclaim, thus saith the Lord. And boy, it's interesting to think about the ministry of John, and as I think about preparing people for the Lord, I truly don't believe that there is anything that can prepare the hearts of men for the coming in of the Lord than the preaching of God's word. And that's the prom- the prominent and predominant resource that was used to prepare people for the Lord. And I believe it's still true today. The means by which God prepares people to receive Jesus is first and foremost through the preaching of His Word. The Bible says, how shall they call on Him in whom, on, in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? There's got to be a preacher. And that's why God calls His his messengers in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2 Hey, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. I'll tell you, one of the travesties of the church today is that we have a bunch of public speakers and a bunch of people who want to get up and make people feel good about themselves and tell them what they want to hear and tickle their ears, but that's not what God wants in His church. What God uses to turn the hearts of people to the Lord. Lord Jesus Christ is the preaching of His Word. God give us more preachers, more men that will be willing to stand up and declare thus saith the Lord. And so John came preaching. But notice where he came preaching. The Bible says he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now I think we have a picture of the wilderness of Judea. This was the wilderness to the east of most of the major cities in the nation of Israel. And I think it's interesting that John he didn't go to the populated city to preach. No, he went to the rural country to preach the truth. The last place that you think a divine messenger would go, you think he'd go to the most populated area and start, and start declaring his message, but that's not where John the Baptist went. He went out in the country. He got away from all the busyness and all the hubbub and all the voices that were distracting in society and he called people away from those voices out into the wilderness to hear a solitary voice. That was speaking the truth. Can I just say this? It would do you a world of good. To shut off the TV. To turn off the cell phone. To cut out the voices that are drowning God's voice out in your life. And start listening to God. John's preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And there in that wilderness region. This is the message that John preached. Look at verse number 2. The Bible said that he said, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What a message. Repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message that God moved John the Baptist to preach was a message of repentance to, to prepare the hearts of people for the kingdom of God. Now that word repent is a Greek word that literally means to change one's mind it, it, it doesn't just mean regret or sorrow. It's a lot more than that. It, it speaks of acknowledging one's sinfulness while at the same time choosing in your heart to turn from your sin and change your actions and to go toward the Lord. One person said repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action." And that's what repentance is. And that's what the, uh, that's what John was calling these people to do. And so in order to prepare for the Messiah's coming kingdom, John called men to confess that they were wrong. And, and to turn their hearts back to the Lord. By the way, can I say this is the same message Jesus preached? And all the apostles and every God-called preacher uh, since that time. They've always preached a message of repentance. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 4 and look at verse 17, the first word... We hear, first message we hear Jesus preach in Matthew 4, 17 is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same exact message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is is at hand. And so I say to you, the message of the gospel is a message of repentance. It's a message of repentance. In order for you to be saved, you must confess that you are a sinner. And turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior. You're not saved by church attendance. You're not saved by baptism. You're not saved by any of your own works. You can only be saved by acknowledging I'll never be good enough for God. And I can only turn to Jesus Christ and he alone can forgive me of my sin and save my soul. It requires repentance. I want you to notice as John preached this message, the Bible says he told them to repent. Why? Well, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, what's that? What's the kingdom of heaven? Well, the kingdom of heaven is essentially the realm in which God is the sovereign king. And it's the kingdom over which Christ reigns. In all the other gospels, if you read Mark and Luke and John, this is always referred to as the kingdom of God. And Matthew, in, in all but one case, it's referred to as the kingdom of heaven. Some people say, well, those must be two different things. But they're not. The reason they're not is Matthew wrote primarily to Jewish people. And the Jews, throughout their history, they would... They would, they, they would hesitate to speak the name of God, lest they speak it irreverently. So oftentimes they would, refer, they would replace the name of God with heaven when they were speaking. And so in Matthew's gospel, he's writing to Jews and he says kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. But they're the same kingdom. It's a, king, it's a kingdom over which Christ is the sovereign ruler. Now the Jews thought that the Messiah was coming to establish a physical kingdom on this earth. But Jesus made it clear when He actually came, and He was the Messiah, He made clear that He was not coming the first time to establish a physical kingdom on earth. He was coming to establish a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of all those who believed in Him. I want you to look in your notes at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 17 and verse number 20 and 21. Jesus said, the kingdom of God comes not with observation, neither shall they say, lo, here or or, lo, there is the kingdom. For behold, the kingdom of God is where? Within you. The kingdom Jesus was establishing when he came to this earth was a kingdom that is spiritual. It's a kingdom that is composed of those who are born again. Those who profess their faith in Christ. Those who repent of their sin and turn to Christ and receive his life inside of them. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, if you are not born again, you cannot see, what? The kingdom of God. See, the only people who can be citizens in this kingdom, the only people who can enter into this kingdom, are those who truly to confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And what's interesting about this kingdom, as it exists on this earth today, is that it essentially exists in two realms. There, there's an inner, inner and an outer realm to the kingdom of God today. In the outer realm of this kingdom are all those who are gathered together in religions all across this world. They might claim the title of Christian. But in the outer realm are those who may claim the title of Christian but have not truly confessed Christ as their Savior. The inner realm of this kingdom is composed of those who are true believers in Jesus Christ. They are truly the children of God. Now, one day, the Lord's going to sort out the outer from the inner. But the truth of the matter is, uh, the kingdom, as it exists on this earth, uh, it's not easy to tell sometimes the difference between those who are in and those who are out. By the way, we'll study in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew many of the parables that Jesus shared. The parable of the gathering net. The parable of the sower. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the parable of the wheat and tares. All of these parables are talking about true believers and non-believers. And at, at the end, God always sorts them out. Right? And so that's the indication of this kingdom. And so right now, this kingdom of God exists only spiritually in the hearts of all believers. But friend, there is coming a day, and you listen to me on this, there is coming a day when Jesus is coming again. And he will establish a physical kingdom on, his earth, on this earth with all of those who have spiritually been made citizens of his kingdom And so the first fact that we must understand uh, in order to prepare the way for Jesus in our hearts is repentance. Repentance. Now, verse 3 tells us that this was the way that John the Baptist came to make clear. Look at verse 3 with me. The Bible says, For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so John, this was with John was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy here in Isaiah 40 and verse three. He was that messenger that came to crying in the wilderness, calling people back to the Lord to make their path straight to the Lord. I'll tell you the thing that makes our path crooked from getting to the Lord more than anything else is sin. Is right. sin? It's an obstacle. That keeps us from coming to the Lord. And this is why a willingness to acknowledge your sin and to turn to Christ is the first step that must be taken if you're going to prepare your heart for Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. And today I stand as John stood calling you to repent of your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus. Now some of you in here might think you have. I know, to tell you, coming to church, praying shallow, empty prayers, vain prayers... That's not what the Bible's talking about here. Right. It's talking about something that happens on the heart level. I wonder, have you really repented of your sin? Have you really confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That's the challenge that John gave to these people. It's the challenge I give to you today. See, my Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Has there come a day that you've confessed your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. I hope there has. But if there, have, there hasn't, today would be a good day for that to take place. Amen? Amen? Matthew pauses in this narrative. And I love verse 4. Although it's a little curious why he chose to put it in there. Obviously God wanted him to. And there's a reason for it. Look at verse 4 with me. The Bible says, And this same John had his raiment of camel's hair, And a leathern girdle about his loins, And his meat was locusts, And wild honey, suffice it to say, John was a wild man, okay? He was a man of the wild. He ate outside. He dressed from what he could get outside. I kind of like him, okay? But why? Why mention these random facts about John right here in the middle of this significant passage of Scripture? I'll tell you the reason that one person said, MacArthur noted, John claimed to be God's messenger, but he did not live, dress, or talk like any of the other religious leaders. In other words, his demeanor called people to not have an outward faith, but an inward faith. He didn't dress the part, so to speak, of religious leaders. He didn't look like a preacher. He looked like a crazy man out in the middle of nowhere. And he was calling people to do something that nobody else was calling people to do. Um, Religion compels men to put on an outward show of faith. But the gospel calls you to be genuine in your faith from your heart. See, the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord doesn't see as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. One of the prophets said, you need to rend your heart, not your garments. Don't worry about what the outside looks like if the inside is full of dead men's bones. You're dead on the inside. You look like you're spiritual on the outside. Your religion is vain. That's the emphasis that we see from John's examples here. and Many people have put on an outward show of repentance but have never had a real conversion experience in their hearts. And I'm here to tell you, you can fool other people, but you will not fool God. My Bible says in Acts chapter 15, verse 8, that God knows the heart of all men. You can be sure He knows your heart today and where you stand and your eternal standing before God. So as John began to preach... People began to come. I want you to see what happens in verses 5 and 6. If you're still with me, say amen. amen. Verse 5, the Bible says, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. As John began to preach this gospel of the kingdom, people from all over began to come and openly acknowledge their sin and turn from their sins to Christ in faith of the Messiah. And then they evidenced their decision by outwardly being baptized. And all these things began to happen. Now the Jews, and their religion, especially at that time, they taught people to justify themselves. Because they were Hebrews. To justify themselves. John looked at them and he said, no, don't, don't justify yourself. You need to accuse yourself. You, you need to admit. Not try to justify yourself before God. You need to admit you're a sinner. And that you're not accepted before God. And then, unless unless you turn from your sin, you will not be accepted into the kingdom of the Messiah. This was an incredible thing uh, to demand of of the Jewish people at that time. Because, hey, outward baptism was not something that Jews did in that time. Now, you know, the Jews in that time, they would demand for all of the Gentile converts to Judaism to get baptized once. But the Jews never got baptized. And so for a bunch of Jews to come out in the wilderness and start admitting that they're sinners and outwardly getting baptized was essentially for them to admit, my being a Hebrew will not save me. I need to to acknowledge my sin and trust in the Messiah to save me. And boy, it was a huge admission. And so uh, literally this outward act of baptism pointed to an inward confession of faith from their heart. And, you know, in that day, they confessed their sins looking forward to the Messiah that was about to come. In our day, we have a special privilege. We don't have to look forward to a Messiah that we hope will come someday. He's already come. And he's already died for our sins and been buried and risen again. And now we know where our salvation comes from. It's through Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And when people get baptized today, it isn't to save them from their sin. It is to outwardly demonstrate That they have confessed they are sinners and they have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And they are not ashamed of it. That's what the public demonstration of baptism is supposed to be all about. And so the first factor that is necessary to prepare the way for the Lord is repentance. Repentance. Until you are willing to admit you are a sinner in need of Jesus to save you, you will continue living on as if you don't need the Lord. Your first step is to repent. By the way, I don't have time to park on this. But listen to me. Repentance is not just for unbelievers. It's for believers too. If you as a believer have grown wayward from the Lord, that's not, God, that's not on God. That's on you. Right. All right, nothing can separate you from, from His love for you. That's a fact. But if you've grown distant in the Lord, it isn't because God moved. It's because you've moved. Right. And what the answer is? Repent. Turn from your sin, from the thing that's been keeping you from the Lord, and turn back to the Lord. In Revelation 2.5, the Lord Jesus said to the churches, remember from where you've fallen, and repent, and go back and do the first works. Remember a time in your life when you were closer to God than you are today? Friend, I want to tell you, your step back starts with you making a, making a willing admission, God, I've been wrong, and I'm turning back to you. And your step You can make the first step back in the right direction today as a believer. And I challenge you to do that. But if you're going to have your heart prepared for the Lord, it starts with repentance. Now let's go to the second necessary factor. First off, repentance. The second necessary factor is the result. Let's write down the word results. When someone has truly repented, their life will show it to be so. That's a big statement. But it's an important statement. When someone has truly repented, their life will show it to be so. So to prepare prepare people for Jesus, John called people to something more than mere superficial religion. He called them to real life transformation. Something that was genuine. And I'll say this. If you have truly confessed your sin and turned your heart to Christ, he will transform your life. It's not a matter of if. It is a matter of fact. He will transform your life. My Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so if you have truly repented of your sin and turned to faith in Jesus Christ, what will happen inevitably is life transformation as a result of that. Now, it doesn't all happen at once. We're all on different levels of our growth in the Lord, but if you have truly confessed Christ as your Savior, there should be some evidence of it taking place in your life. Verse number seven, notice what John said, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, as John began to preach, There was a lot of people coming out, and among the people coming out were a lot of religious people, Pharisees and and Sadducees. The Pharisees were the conservatives of the day. They adhered to all the Mosaic law, and then they wrote a bunch of extra rules they called the Talmud, and they had a bunch of what was called the tradition of the elders, all these additional rules that they kept that they thought would help them keep all the laws, and they had to keep all of them. These were the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the liberals. They adhered to the Mosaic Law, but they denied the rest of Scripture. They denied miracles, and they denied much of what what else the Bible had to say, and they didn't keep any of the traditions. They were the ones that were more on the liberal side of the spectrum. But both groups, though they were often enemies, they were essentially the same in the fact that they were both trusting in personal works and self-effort to save them. By the way, both groups still exist today. The religionists and the rationalists. And these people who, uh, they're trusting in themselves instead of trusting in Jesus Christ. they exist in all different types of religions still today. And uh, the Bible is crystal clear about two facts here as we think about these religious people. And that is that you cannot be saved by your works. And that after you are saved, your life is not transformed by your own effort, but by the work of the Spirit of God within you. Both of those facts are equally true. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 make it clear that it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And it's not of works, lest any man should boast. So we can't be saved by our own works. Then the Bible goes on and says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. See, we're not saved by our good works, neither do we make our life change by our own effort either. It's something God does in us. The book of Philippians says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and do of his good pleasure. And maybe part of the problem that you've been facing in your life is you've been trying to change your life on your own instead of confessing, I'm a sinner and I'm helpless by myself, and calling out to Jesus and letting him make the change in your life that you could never do on your own. So there were these religious elites who stood before John the Baptist. John stood before an ever-increasing crowd of self-reliant, outwardly religious people who thought they didn't need Jesus. He realized this was an obstacle in the way keeping them from coming to Christ. And his job was to prepare the way for the Lord. So what did he say to them? Well, look at verse number seven. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of what? Vipers! Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He labeled them a generation of vipers. Now how would you like it if you walked into church today and I said, You green-eyed, yellow-bellied son of a one-eyed prayed oh?" <laughs> That's kind of a mean thing for a preacher to say, huh? He looked square, he looked them square in the eyes and said, You vipers! And the obvious, the obvious indication, that vipers are uh, 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 of such a nature that they're a very particular uh, breed of snake. And they will actually hatch their eggs inside of the living mother. And the eggs will actually hatch inside of the viper. And so uh, uh, instead of most, most snakes will, will, uh, will produce eggs and the, and the younger are born outside the mother, the mother produces the egg inside. And, 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 the, and, and, and so uh, a living snake is what is born as a result of it. And so the idea that John was communicating here was, hey, you were born inside the tradition of your forefathers. And so now you continue to spew their venom. You continue to spew the things that were just inbred in you from the time that you were very young. The fact of the matter is, the religion of these religious people was not real to them. It was ritual for them. See, it was a dead Religion by every definition. And so much of what happens in churches today can also be said to be nothing more than dead religion. Listen to me the services are ritualistic, the services are empty. The people are dead. There's no life. There's no vitality. There's no interest truly in the things of God. Because what they have is something they've inherited from their parents. Instead of something that they've experienced for themselves. I'm going to tell you until your faith becomes personal. It is nothing more than a dead religion. You can be in here every week. But the reason you're here. Is because that's what mom and dad told you you were supposed to. So say, I'm 45 years old. You're still doing what mom and dad told you you're supposed to do. And there's nothing more than your parents' religion, and it's not yours. It's a dead religion, right? That's the generation of vipers. And Jesus warned about this type of thing in Colossians 2.8 when he said, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men and not after Christ. So Jesus looked at these religious people, and he talked to them in a way that no other people would. Because the Pharisees and Sadducees, they dressed the part. They outwardly were great looking people. Very religious people. But John looks at them and he says, You vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath that is coming on you? In other words, John's saying, hey, you can look the part for everybody else. But God sees your heart. He sees the evil that's in your heart. And you will not escape God's judgment just because you wear the right clothes. You will not escape God's judgment just because you do all the things that religious people are supposed to do. He looks at these religious people and he begins to call out to their very hearts the things, the obstacles that were keeping them from being prepared to let Christ come in. He compelled them to do something in verse 8. He said you need to bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. In other words... He told them, you need to show in your life the results of your repentance. Show in your life the results of your repentance. Many people put on a show of repentance, but it's nothing more than feeling bad for getting caught, or it's nothing more than feeling bad for the potential consequences for their sins. That's not the same thing as repentance. All right? The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. When someone is truly repentant, do you know how it's evidenced? It's evidenced in manifested behavior. In other words, their life changes when they've truly repented. And I say to you, if your life has changed because you have trusted Christ... Hey, if if you have truly repented, I should say, because you have presumed to say you've trusted in Christ, then your life should have changed. And that's a hard message to receive. It's not a popular message, certainly in the day and time that we're living in. John warned these people that their heritage, their pedigree, none of it would save them. He said, hey, don't think because you're a child of Abraham that that's going to save you. I've said it all the time. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. Just because your parents were saved doesn't mean you are. It's a personal decision to trust Christ as your Savior. Romans 14.12 14, 14, says, Therefore, every man must give account of himself to God. And you can be sure you will give an account of yourself to God one day. So have you genuinely put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior The most significant way your heart can be prepared for the Lord is by examining the results of your life. Listen, you may say you are a Christian, but does your life show it? That's the hard question. If you have truly believed in Jesus, only God knows the hearts of men. But the Bible does tell us that every person will know it in their heart if they have truly been made a child of God. Romans 8, 16 says, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. In other words, if you're saved, you'll know it. And if you're not, you'll know that as well. The challenge the Lord gives us in the scripture in 2 Corinthians is to examine yourself whether you be in the faith. Listen to me. I've I've had this happen all the time. Well, my mom says I got saved, wrong. You examine your heart. You're the one that's going to stand before God someday. Right. And as a herald from heaven, John the Baptist came and said, I'm going to prepare the way for the Lord. And it started with repentance. And then it came to the results. And the final thing I want you to see, and I only have time to mention it, is this the reckoning. The reckoning. Notice what the Bible tells us in verse 10. Verse 10, the Bible says, And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is is hewn down and cast into the fire. A farmer in an orchard at the end of the season will go around and find those trees that haven't produced. You know what he's going to do with them? He's going to cut them down. He's going to make more room for the fruitful trees. They're going to be done with. Listen. One day there's going to be a day of reckoning. What the Bible's telling us here is that the axe is already laid to the root of the tree. Listen. Your fate has already been determined. If you don't trust Christ as your Savior and manifest the fruit of salvation in your heart, which comes from God, your fate has already been determined. The axe is already laid to the root of your tree. Without Christ, you will perish. You can be sure of it. John began to tell these people, you think you're okay, but you don't realize at the end, the truth of your life is going to be revealed. You can fool everybody else, but God sees the fruit of your heart. And one day he will bring judgment upon you. Now I love the fact that with the message of judgment, he also gives a measure of hope. I want you to look at verse 11 with me. Verse 11. He said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. In other words, John was saying, hey, all I can do is tell you the truth and see outwardly how you respond. And if, if you respond outwardly in the way that you're supposed to, then I can baptize you. But I don't know your heart. He said, I baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And I love this. In the midst of giving this message of judgment, hey, the axe is already laid to the, to the root of your tree. And without Christ, you'll perish. He also tells them then about the Messiah. There's one coming. But there's one coming. But there's one coming. And yes, you're a sinner. And yes, you deserve to be punished for your sin. But there's one coming who can save you from your sin. I'm not even worthy to take the shoes off of his feet. That was the lowliest task a servant could do in that time. John, the greatest of prophets to ever live, says, I'm not even worthy of that. That's how wonderful he is. And he's coming not to give an outward baptism, but to give an inward baptism. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And there are two baptisms are mentioned. He first speaks of the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That's when Jesus began this process. He sent down the Holy Spirit of God. And from that time forth, every believer who has trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior has been indwelled or baptized by the Spirit of God. That's what we often refer to getting saved as inviting Jesus into your what? Heart. Because literally we're inviting the Spirit of God into our heart when we trust Christ as our Savior. It's it's, it's a wonderful thing. Only Jesus has the power to save us and and, and then send His Spirit to indwell us as believers. The Bible says He's going to have the power to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. We're almost done. He'll also have the power to baptize with fire. You know what fire is? Fire is always a symbol in the Word of God of judgment. I want you to understand, as we look at what the Scripture tells us, Jesus Christ, as the Scripture says in another part, will one day come in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon those who know not God. Today, you have an opportunity to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ to save you. But there is coming a day when there will be no more time. Jesus came the first time to offer salvation to men. When he comes the second time, he's not coming to save. He's coming to judge the world. And every person who is not a true child of God will be found on the wrong side of that judgment. One more illustration and we're done. Look at verse 12. The Bible says about the Messiah, whose span is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now in the ancient world, they would oftentimes, the farmers would put together something called a threshing floor. It was usually a, a circle about 30 or 40 feet wide. And they would come and they usually try to put it up on top of a hill somewhere where it would be really windy. And they would, they would come and they would ground the ground in that circle down. They'd get it real wet and then they would just keep uh, running animals over it until it became very hard. They put rocks around it, and so they could bring all of the stalks from their uh, from their crop in. The wheat, in particular, is the picture in mind in this passage here. And they'd put it in the middle of that circle. And Then they'd bring an ox. They they tie a rope around the ox, and they put a piece of wood behind that ox, and he just walk around and keep uh, and keep demolishing all of those crops that were in that circle, it's to separate the kernel from the chaff or the straw. And then. That farmer would come in after that process had taken place and he'd pick up that straw with the kernels and the chaff in it and he'd throw it up in the air. And everything that was straw, the wind would blow it away. But the kernels would drop that down. And he'd just keep doing that. Tossing it up in the air, the straw goes away, the kernels fall to the ground. And he'd keep doing that until there was no more straw and was only the true seeds that were left. One day, Jesus is coming again. You can fool everybody else today, but on Judgment Day, he's going to stick his winnowing fork in. He's going to toss it up. And everybody who says they're a part of the church will be included in this, but only the true believers will be left. The chaff, those who are false professors, those who are just pretense Christians, they'll be, they'll be blown away. And The Bible says they'll be gathered and thrown into eternal Hell fire! You say I came all the way out in the snow to hear this message. You did, but here's the good news: if you're a pretender, you don't have to leave this place of pretender. And if you're a Christian, you don't have to fear that day of judgment if you profess Jesus Christ as your Savior. But if you're here, you're religious. You got the outside looking pretty good. The Holy Spirit of God has made clear to you there's an inward heart issue. You have not truly repented of your sin and trusted Christ as your Savior. Today's the day. Today's the day. Stop putting it off. You can fool us. We can't save you. We can't do anything. Only He can save you. You say, what are other people going to think of me if I get saved and come to the church all these years? They're going to be happy for you. Right? There's an old preacher William, uh, 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 William uh, Hensley, uh, he was, he was a, a preacher in Old England. He was asked to be a parson, and he wasn't saved. And he was in a congregation of a bunch of saved people who, boy, his heart began to get convicted because, hey, all of them, they knew the Lord. But he obviously didn't know the Lord, and so he was going to tender his resignation one day because he was so troubled about this. And he stood up in front of his congregation on one, one Sunday, and he was going to resign. And as he stood up there... He realized, I'm no different than the Pharisees. I don't believe in Jesus any more than they did. And as he stood up preaching that Sunday, the Holy Spirit worked on his heart. And while he stood talking to his church, he got saved. And boy, the congregation watched the whole thing happen. And there was an old country preacher from a different town that was in the congregation that day. And he stood up and he said... The parson got converted. Hallelujah. Can you imagine? Boy, everybody, the, the whole auditorium just erupted up. Everybody could see it was real. Everybody could see this guy who was just, it was just a dead religion to him before. All of a sudden it was real. And all of a sudden he truly trusted Christ as his Savior. That's what I want for you. You've not truly trusted Christ as your Savior. Today you can do it. By God's grace, I pray that you will.